Consider the thing that would solve the particular problem necessarily, and so I think when uh, First Green was when First Green was climbing the arch, uh, there were other actions going on in the in the uh, in the matter of seeking jobs and so that CORE, the NAACP, and, and uh, Urban League, who were interested in increasing black jobs, they did not feel that this was the way to go, but they certainly understood what Percy's uh, actions were aimed at. And, and then when he was successful, they, would they be happy? For instance, a, a person well, I, who... I don't think that you can say that he was successful because he did that. Uh, well, he got, didn't he get jobs for construction workers because Yeah, but there were other efforts going on. All oh. see, Percy was not the first one who thought of the fact that uh, blacks were not being hired down there on an arch. And that is the thing that irritated some of the uh, more conservative approaching mm -hmm. organizations. They were working, but just like the Jefferson Bank confrontation, this was Percy's opportunity to get out and dramatize it in a way that he considered would be beneficial. Well, maybe because of the background work that had been done. It was a combination. Right. It was a combination. So he did uh, wind up getting more people employed, but it, it could not all be laid into his, uh, 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 given the times. Mm -hmm. There were all kinds of things going on about trying to get more jobs. Urban League was having conferences. Um, they were uh, gathering statistics. There was dialogue going on at the national level with the federal people who were involved. They took it all. And so all of that was going on. And here goes Percy one day and <laughs> jumps out and he's going to stop the construction effort. Well, it's it, uh, highly dramatized. But there again, if uh, no one else had been doing anything and Percy climbed the arch, I don't think he would have gotten a single job because person, the person would have been just snatched off of the arch and put in jail, and that would have been the end of it. But there were a number of other things going on. Attitude changes were going on, and they were being affected by other forces that First Green probably never did even realize that they were happening. But everybody was aware that the construction was not hiring blacks. That was no secret. And of course, we had that battle to continue long after the arch was finished. The city was hiring uh, in the matter of, of bidding to uh, get certain things, for instance, the uh, convention center. And I can remember sitting in with the black represent representatives from Jeff City with the mayor 
in terms of some kind of vehicle where the black community could uh, understand that the city was going to insist on a certain amount of black employment. And to that end, we had a human rights committee. That became the wave of the 60s, setting up a human rights commission to oversee, because I remember earlier in this conversation, you were talking about how did the public accommodations law uh, come through after it was passed. It didn't. There was a, an ongoing effort made to get people's opinions changed, their attitudes changed, and there were human rights commissions established. We had one at the state level. We had one at the city level. And these uh, agencies, they were working for more jobs for a better understanding between employers and the black community, the corporations. So as I said, to say that, you know, the acting out people were the ones who accomplished, that is fine with me because maybe that little uh, extra push they gave hastened it. But as I said, knowing the, the full gamut and the range of the concern and the degree of determination that had been slowly building over the years, all of this in my mind would have come to pass. Might have taken a little longer, but the move was there, the determination was there. And it was things like the World War, which uh, gave American blacks an experience into another world to come back to this country and find out that they are a number three citizen where they had been out to give blood and defend. And they weren't going to take that. So as I said, all of this, all of these things work together work to me as a, com a continuing mm -hmm. process. All right, what, what role do you feel the civil, that uh, the churches played? in the Civil Rights Movement in St. Louis in the 60s? Oh, I would consider that the, the churches were the uh, base uh, of uh, support. And I would call it a dominant force in, in the gathering of support for the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I think a little earlier I had said that I would great women a little higher than men in terms of certain participation, but I would rank the churches highest in terms of organizations other than civil rights groups. The churches would have been the number two. In other words, the civil rights group select the issue, articulate the issue, project the area issue, but it was the church uh, followers, members, ministers who rallied the main forces. And I think churches is to be given all kinds of credit for the role they played, particularly in the period when Martin Luther King was mobilizing his 
battle in the South. Here's a here's a picture of Martin Luther King when he came here, which was in '64. Uh, Jim. Yeah. And um, here's a um, this was I have a picture here that no one seems to know anything about. And I just wonder if you do. It's March 31st, 1967, black bags during press conference at Washington U. Does that strike any kind of bell? We can't get a handle on it. Obviously. 67. community as the newspapers reported and compiled by Ernest Calloway. I may have to come and live with uh, you. Oh, that whole <laughs> wall out there. Now this is 67 and I am pretty certain if there was such a meeting there was some kind of of uh, you don't have a uh, a month date on that, do you? Uh, yeah, I think it was March 31st. It was March. Was, these things are now beginning to... He learned a little later, after he started this collection, that by uh, reproducing them, he could... Uh, they stuck better? No, reproducing them, photograph them, and they would hold up better. That's what I mean. Stick, yeah. stick better, the reproductions. Would well, they wouldn't have to be stuck. They'd just be photographed. Mm. And he started doing this for me. Me. See, that label has fallen off. I try to put them down in the page when I come through and find them. February. something we didn't bring up was police brutality, which was a, we going to, with an, in a little, in the next an action that took up quite <laughs> rights rally for bank demonstrators, but that's April. So I, I have some sort of a notion. Maybe you should uh, pause here. Let me turn this on. What was it? like in the black community when Martin Luther King died? Do you, do you remember when you first heard it? Uh, we've been... <laughs> we've been joined by a friend of Mrs. Calloway's, Mrs. Gloria Henry, and um, I'll ask both of you, have you... What was it like? Well, I can say that there was uh, 
tremendous shock and disbelief on part of the average person. And then among uh, the leadership level, there were quite a bit of uh, concern on how St. Louis could avoid some of the riotous responses that had begun to develop all over the country. And there were several meetings uh, with the then mayors, the Bantists, and uh, my husband and other leaders on how to handle uh, the mass response in a way that would circumvent their voluntary uh, unruly reaction to this horrible incident. Who were some of the other leaders? Oh, we had almost everybody who had evidenced any, any, uh, any indication of leadership. Um, you had uh, Norman Say, who was active then in CORE and who had been a main spokesperson against police brutality. And you had uh, uh, Margaret Bush Wilson, you had Joe Clark, you had uh, uh, T.D. McNeil, you had all the political elected persons, black. Uh, you had members of the uh, so-called zebras, and, and we had something called the uh, Zulu 1000s. They attended some of their representatives. Uh, Ivory Perry was walking the streets and, and sounding out uh, people's responses and urging people to play cool. And we in St. Louis were going to, we were going to react, wait until the decision is made. And so it was eventually decided that a march be organized to demonstrate in, uh, in reaction. And so that is really what happened, that uh, uh, the temperature of the community was reduced by the leaders uh, communicating with grassroots people and securing their commitment to, to react to this in a dignified and, and uh, what do you call it, a calm way and not to follow and what happened in this city, what happened in other cities where uh, the result was most disastrous for the black people because the rioting and everything really hit hardest back into the black community where the, the vandalism, uh, the loss of property, destruction of property and the arrest and, pro and a couple of instances uh, uh, police shot some of the people and some were killed, and so um, it seemed that the uh, the conservative uh, setting of the city of St. Louis, which has never been a a uh, what you would call a, a hotbed of liberalism, that that conservative element was able to to evaluate the situation and get the uh, 
base people, the average citizen man on the street, to understand that it will not bring Martin Luther King back. It will not resolve any of our problems that he was trying to solve and we're trying to solve, but we will do something. And so that is the way I remember it. I remember meeting such we were holding them on Olive, and there was a building over there, and I've forgotten who had control of that building. One of the poverty-fighting groups, I think, had it, but that was where nightly meetings for about three nights immediately, the night of the assassination, and uh, the uh, two following nights, and these meetings went on until 12.30 and 1 o'clock with different people projecting different ideas on what we must do and how we must react to this. So that is the way I recall that. I don't know whether Gloria had some experiences in that or not. Well, mine was just a personal experience. I uh, worked at a clinic that had both um, black, white, and other races attending the clinic. I happened to have a white secretary at that time. She came to work the day following, so what I did, I put her in my car and took her over Jefferson Avenue to South St. Louis, because she lived in South St. Louis, and sent her home and told her not to come back until I called her, because everybody was on edge. And she was a very nice young lady. I knew her family and I didn't want anything to happen to her. But people were very, very much on edge. And at the health center, we were very afraid that something might develop into a conflict between black and white. I prayed, I really prayed, and nothing happened. In fact, people, I think, were being better, showing more kindness to one another. But we blacks really felt the loss of our great leader, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And that is about all mm -hmm. I can add. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, why do you, uh, well, we talked about anger before, and it's, it's almost inconceivable that uh, it was able to be um, controlled. In one, I talked to Bill Bailey. We talked about that. Um, now that's the Bill Bailey that was involved with court. It seems that there was another Bill Bailey. Did you know another Bill Bailey? Mid-City Council. Uh, yeah, well, this would have been the building, I think, where we were meeting. Uh -huh, because and the he, other Bill Bailey, he was from our town. He had this, the Bill Bailey that I talked to attributed uh, some of the fact that there wasn't uh, there weren't riots um, to. Um, he would have been a, a Zulu, wouldn't he? I don't know. Well, I, so. I know that those um, activist groups, mm -hmm. they did. As I, I mentioned, Ivory Perry went right into action mm -hmm. uh, going around among the street people mm -hmm. saying, look here, man, cool it, and we're going to get a plan, just hold yourself until we get the plan. So that was really, um, I think, uh, the fact that you didn't just have some kook on the street picking up a rock 
attacking a white business or something, and then uh, from that, uh, the police reaction uh, that would cause a real conflagration. Now, the police were brought in on these meetings, and there were plans developed for containment of the black community, what uh, elements of the police force would go into plan A, plan B. They had plans in terms of how to handle the black community if a Donnybrook developed. Because see, that is how these things usually happen in some um, unsuspected um, actions that someone on the street just got mad and did something. Then in come the police to control it, and much of what, we, what came after was due to the way the police handled the call to the original scene. And so that was one of the things that the mayor and the chief of the police and some of the people from the uh, various departments of police. That was the major uh, concern that they had. How do the authority figures react in case some incident occurs? And so you had uh, levels of, of, uh, of um, authority figures who were concerned about one or the other phases. Some were concerned with how do we treat the children and the women, how do we protect the older people, and the main thing was what do we do to give the people an opportunity to uh, let off steam. And it was the march. And the march became uh, the answer. Before yeah. we talked about the, was there any coordination of efforts between all the different uh, black uh, actions and you could say that this was one that would have been an example of, of a coordinated effort because as I said every element that alleged to have any uh, leadership connection ministers were involved in, in, in church people uh, anybody that uh, got a call from uh, uh, I don't remember people who were well I know Norman say he was mobilizing and getting the police and uh, uh, I think the NAACP and Corps of the Mayor's Office was very active in, in calling people in. And uh, Mayor Sabanis was most cooperative because he did not want uh, any incident in St. Louis while he was the mayor. So you had a, a real uh, example yes, here of all the elements of the civil rights movement uh, coalesced in attempting to hold the peace and keep the uh, keep the flames from bursting, I mean, flaring up. Okay, now that we're on, we've talked about that kind of riot at that particular time. Why do you think that race riots were avoided? For the most part, I mean, they they were in St. Louis, but besides on Martin Luther King. Well, I would think that there were probably not uh, 
the pockets of uh, of anger coalesced in, in these uh, places. <laughs> I just don't think that there were there were pockets in certain places. Oh, I could start the other night. Um, I can't really tell you why I, um, there were no riots, except I know that all over the country, the same kind of thing happened in most of the cities that didn't have a, a, a riot that happened here in St. Louis. That the leadership got busy trying to and prevent it. How do you feel about what Marion Olden said? Underemployment, poor health care, inadequate police, uh, inadequate welfare, police brutality, poor housing, poor education, and high food prices are factors that can contribute to unrest. The masses of Negroes are worse off today than 50 years ago. That was then. But then we had hope. Today we don't. When man is powerless and has no hope, he is ready to die. Well, I think that is a very uh, um, clear and lucid uh, evaluation of the situation. That is uh, the thing that has me disturbed at this particular point in time, because uh, those uh, conditions that she has iterated there, they are growing now at a more rapid pace than they were growing. We had those conditions, but they were not accelerating as rapidly in that period. They just existed. They were there and everybody was aware of them. But now we have accelerating uh, conditions that have been named there. The homelessness, it is leaping, the numbers are increasing weekly. And the acceleration is really what bothers me because except that we do not have the pockets where such people who are endangered and threatened by these conditions, and now they are not contained in a certain area, now they are dispersed. But should there come a time, as uh, some are, uh, are seeking to do, when you bring a uh, designated area where all the homeless, to me that's a very dangerous situation. Once you get all the people who are homeless in uh, any kind of environment where they are in, in daily personal contact with one another, then that is where the danger lies because the anger then can be uh, accentuated mm -hmm. and also uh, fomented in terms of, of uh, activists who feel that now is the time to do something about it. And so I think that we're in a more dangerous uh, situation regarding uh, possible riots. And, but now the uh, power structure has worked out it's it's uh, reaction. See, those earlier uh, conflagrations caught everybody by surprise. But our police force here has three or four major uh, uh, systems 
were uh, in ready to go in place the minute anything appears to be, and I think it's, it's true all over the country, that they can, uh, first of all, gotta uh, have police to understand what is happening, not just go out and react to somebody throwing a rock in a big uh, um, pawn shop window and hundreds beginning to rush in and snatch the stuff and vandalism and, and uh, that's when the sniping begins. Police uh, start shooting people willfully and whatnot when, when the, the properties of other people are being jeopardized. So I think now you've got some kind of more, uh, what do you call it, uh, controlled uh, reaction to what might become a, a, a violent incident. What about the collective consciousness of the city over this period of time? Well, I really haven't given too much thought about present time in well, terms of 60s, the collective thought. We, we have no organization at this point in time that... Sixties. Uh, you're asking, let me get my my question clear in mind. You're asking, what about the 60s in terms mm -hmm. of... How did it change? Did it change people? Did the it events of the, yes. of the 60s? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you had the uh, the great pacification that, that came in. And I don't think that it changed so many people. It subdued them. It gave a lot of the activists real work to do, work that they could get paid for. And so... Get paid for? Yeah. They were put to work in the poverty program. Many of them, people who were activists in the early struggle, and people who were uh, prepared to get up and march, and, and uh, people who were hurting in terms of, of survival. And uh, that is what um, the pacification program was all about. How do you feel about that? Well, I feel that it was the best possible thing for that time. I think a lot of the money was wasted in terms of the um, principle on which uh, Lyndon Johnson and his great society uh, was moving was that you could get people to pull themselves up by their, their own bootstraps. So inherent in most of the programs that were initiated at that level was, was a requirement that you hire the, the, um, the unskilled, the unlearned, the uh, illly prepared person that you hired them. And the things that they hired them, hired them to do were far and above beyond their ability to organize other people to work themselves up by their bootstraps. So it was a waste of money. So you had the Union Sarah Community Center, I was on the board, and we were constantly in the in the process of uh, screening and okaying people 
to come to work and the salaries range was very good and the competition for the job became so uh, acute and we even had one of our directors killed because he fired one of the people that considered himself greatly eligible to be on the payroll. And so uh, gradually. It was a phony premise, you said? Yeah, it was a phony, phony pre premise that you should set up programs allocating great gobs of money uh, to be disseminated down through the hiring of people to teach other people to pull themselves to pull up themselves. by their bootstraps <laughs> yeah. because there was nothing they could teach them. All they could do was to draw their salary and hold meetings. And I sat in many meetings where they chewed at the, the thought of setting up a, a neighborhood uh, grocery store. And eventually Union Sarah did set up a, a what do you call a supermarket hiring people who knew nothing about stocking, ordering, mm -hmm. controlling the movement. But they had to do something. But this was pulling up by the bootstrap. It failed, it flunked, and all the money we put in, I argued strongly, you cannot get a grassroots supermarket to, to compete with a national, a Kroger, a Snook, doesn't make it, sense. it doesn't work, but that was what was coming down from the top and the people who had been selected as the community board, they had been pulled from community and all they could see was this great vision of a supermarket run by our neighborhood people. But I kept arguing you got to have skill, you have yeah. to have ability, Train. you have yeah. to be able to compete in the arena in which you are trained to, to, and even Jim Hurd himself was unsuccessful in a supermarket venture up it, at the corner of Grand and, uh, and Bell. I've kept you so long, and I know you have friends here, and I, I want to let you go, but could you, this is the end. <laughs> could you just touch on the social, political, and economic changes that the 60s brought about for the black? Well, I cannot quarrel with the fact that changes did occur. I agree that changes occurred. Uh, one of the major changes I feel in terms of the economy was the fact that many corporate employers with some nudging from the government, opened up for more black employees. Even Bush, who was an outstanding employer here in the city, uh, had, had not tackled that problem. But he did open up. And there were other places where the, the doors had been closed, opened up so that we began to see blacks more visible in uh, such as our post office, um, 
so more blacks into your police department. You saw more blacks into the visible um, sectors where. We were interrupted by a phone. Yeah. Uh, I am trying to recount the, uh, the economic gains. And uh, I would say that that job employment was one of the gains. And by relating the, the visibility uh, leading up to the sociological changes so that um, the change there was a message to the younger uh, members of the black community that uh, they belong. And uh, the exclusion that I had grown up with uh, had been eliminated. There was a time when you never saw a black face in certain sections of our society in terms of jobs. But that gradually was uh, eliminated. I don't think uh, we'll ever go back to the time when you have an all-white police force, an all-black fire department, that your uh, uh, post office will be run by all-white faces, and other areas where the visibility of the employee has impact on the young people. And that would have been one of the sociological benefits. And now, in terms of uh, the economic impact, uh, Black is, is facing a totally different world in terms of manufacturing and the making of products for sale. And uh, so, we have a different uh, level of, of concern that has to be mounted. If our society had continued its uh, old techniques of steel manufacturing, paper mill uh, uh, products, the uh, traditional uh, low-skill, uh, high-salary things, then I think we would have seen a much better economic uh, picture in terms of flights. But at this point in time, the gains of the 60s are being eliminated because the jobs themselves are being eliminated. And so gains that we could call gains now are sort of melting away. What's the answer if you had to talk to young people? Well, my answer to, to talk to young people in terms of their future is that they have got, they have simply got to it is a must, and they will be completely eliminated from the job market if they don't acquire sellable skills. 
And those skills now have transferred from uh, the traditional areas where you could expect to grow up and get a good job and live a fairly decent life. The electronics dominates the uh, the whole of the the sphere, yeah, the sphere of of job action. Everyone has got to now understand that if you don't understand the electronic world, you are down down the scale in terms of the job because you've got all of your uh, television, telecommunications. All of those things functioning at the electronic level. Your automobile industry has gone electronic on you. Most of your appliances, your simple appliances at home, <coughs> have gone electronic. Even your washing machines and your uh, oven, those simple operational oven, it's gone electronics. So if you want to be a repairman, you've got to understand electronics. So my message would be, be prepare. And it's got to be some science that becomes basic into the education system of, of public schools. We no longer can permit children, young people, to say, I don't like arithmetic. I'm not going to take algebra. It's got to be a must in terms of preparing them. And so that is the way I would speak to children that uh, they look at television, uh, they've got to come to comprehend that in order to, uh, to do well and to, to live decently, uh, they have got to learn what makes the television tick. They turn it on, but do they know what makes it come on? Ms. Calloway, you have been a privilege to be with and to interview. I could keep you here all day. <laughs> I'm going to let you well, go. Well, I really get wound up when I, when you give me an idea. All you have to do is <laughs> it's an idea and she starts rambling. Yeah, but you do that thoroughly like you've obviously done everything else. You've been a role model, I would imagine, for a lot well, of people. Well, I hope I have. Yeah. You know what? I have to tell you, I'm not going to forget you, you know what? Because I'm never going to forget thinking about a little girl with a screwdriver taking those signs down. That was a, a beginning. Yes. <laughs> that was a scene. Thank you so yeah. much.